Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 15 through 18. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 15 through 18. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should be able to find one under the seat in front of you. And please turn to page 905. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for the absence, for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Uh, It's good to join you here. Worship with you all and now share the word of God with you. It's especially good to be indoors. And I praise God for a roof. Okay, Uh, let's pray as we begin. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word. And give us grace that we may clearly understand and follow the way of your wisdom. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hunger for this heavenly food that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. That we may feast on Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Aid your servant now in bringing forth the word of God that he may glorify you and aid your people to hear these words of life as they are the words of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We are coming to the last bend of 1 Corinthians before we get to the finish line, which will be next week. Next week we will finish this glorious book And uh, after that, we'll have a few more messages in between before we get to our next book, following 1 Corinthians. But uh, many of you have also shared this with me. But when we come to a section like chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, it's also important to remember that this section is just as inspired as Genesis 1 or John 3.16. And as we have seen, this section isn't simply just some personal fillers that Paul wanted to do as he wrapped up. It's just as inerrant and infallible as with any part of God's special revelation. And speaking of special revelation, for the last few weeks, I have been staying on this general natural revelation and special revelation. Hopefully what you will garner is that all knowledge, All science, all natural revelation is God's. There is no, this is God's and this part is not God. That means even the hard sciences like physics or chemistry, biology, or even the social sciences like philosophy, all knowledge belongs to God. It is in the natural revelation that no one can escape the reality that God exists and he bestows upon his creation the knowledge of his handiwork. 
You know, when Adam was created, he had all this knowledge. He knew about working the land. He knew about agricultural stuff. He knew about the animals. All God had to do was bring an animal in front of him, and Adam knew what to call it. Adam had natural revelation, just as we do now. But one thing he didn't have was he didn't know that out of all the trees in the garden, there was one tree he couldn't eat of. So he could eat of any tree in the garden, but he couldn't eat this of the fruit of this one tree. And that was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For that, God had to give him a special revelation. We see natural revelation shown, us, shown to us in the Word of God as well. When the Bible exhorts its reader to go to the ant, you sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. That's wisdom that's looking into natural revelation. And some might think, well, why is that there? Couldn't some other guru think of this? And so when I talk about you know, astrophysics or philosophy, one might also ask, why talk about this natural revelation? But I hope you see my point. To separate natural and special revelation, to help us understand the differences between the two is one thing, but to compartmentalize it, to think that one knowledge belongs to the secular world and then one other knowledge belongs in the pulpit is simply wrong. All knowledge is the Lord's. Two plus two equals four is a gift from God. To not understand this would be to our detriment. Special revelation is special precisely because we would never have been able to ascertain it on our own. Maybe we could get to a partial place of understanding, but partial understandings of the truth bring kingdoms to ruin, and it will bring destruction to the individual. The Word of God is called special revelation because it is supernatural communication from God. And it's been given to us. It's been given to humanity. The truths revealed in Scripture could not have been known otherwise, and in particular, the gospel is revealed in the Scriptures. The gospel, the good news, is that Jesus Christ is God, come to us incarnate as a man, came to die as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, our sins that separated us from God. That is special revelation. This can be only known through the Word of God. God has chosen to reveal Himself to us in the ultimate form of special revelation then, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. This is who we celebrate, we worship, we adore, we love, and we obey. You know, I really hope our church does get this. From especially the 18th century, which was the re-entrance of humanism. Humanism, which really started from the 15th century, which we know as the Renaissance. In the 18th century, classically know this century as the age of enlightenment. 
And with it, it brought a whole range and spectrum of ideas and thinkers. There were some really important thinkers that were pivotal to our understanding of the natural world, like Newtonian physics was discovered in the 18th century. But this was also the age that lifted up reason. So reason meaning capital R, reason. It lifted up reason over and against special revelation. So we had the special revelation, but this century brought up and lifted up reason, capital R, reason, above special revelation. What was the outcome of that? The focus of all this intellectual attention that we had went to understanding man, not God, went to understanding man, which is humanism. When humanism started to make ground, it was challenged. So in the 15th century, when humanism started to make ground, it was challenged in the 16th century by the Reformers, by the Reformation. Today is Reformation Sunday. And so from then on, we see a strong revival of biblical Christianity. Martin Luther, the great reformer, debated Erasmus, who was known to be one of the greatest scholars in the Renaissance. It was special revelation versus humanism. Luther won that debate and restored a strong Augustinian theology to the Protestant world. This lasted not just in the 16th century, but throughout the 17th century as well, where Luther and the Reformers maintained their victory over the humanists in the Renaissance. And this was the idea, so this is the idea, that humankind is fallen, we are corrupt. That's the idea of original sin. We are in bondage. We are enslaved to our evil impulses. That means we do not do the things that we want to do and we do the things that we don't want to do. We are enslaved. But in the 18th century, I'm getting back to that, a strong reaction started to emerge against the whole notion of the fall, original sin. And it emerged from their thinkers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau leading the way for humanist thinking to come back. It was a movement against Luther, Calvin, and all the reformers' thinking. And this is what it is. It's the rejection that humans are depraved. Original sin is rejected. That's what humanism has done. The triumph of the modern-day form of humanism is what we are seeing here today. The form of humanism is where we think that society is improved when human behavior is improved, which will lead to utopia. So we want to improve society, and as we improve society, think about all the things that are happening, all these movements, all these programs. So as we improve human society, then our behavior will be also improved. That's the form of humanism that has made its way to current day today. Our current government thinks of itself as integral to this development as well. We need to reform these programs, society, and then human behavior 
will be improved, and then we will have utopia. And if you've been following history, you understand that a government, that a government that needs to lead a country to utopia is no longer a democracy. Democracy is about holding powers at bay because we understand that humans are fallen. Our founding fathers understood this. Montesquieu wrote about it years before and so on. But what we understand about natural and special revelation has everything to do with politics and our way of life. Younger people will cry out for a separation of church and state without understanding what that sentiment was for. It was written by Jefferson to get the state out of the church because he even knew that for a strong democracy, you needed strong churches. And the state would only corrupt the churches if they weren't allowed to teach what they taught. In this world, the church is set apart. It's set apart so that we would teach the revelation that God has given us in his word. This brings us wisdom that's not from this world, but from above, like it says in James chapter 3. It's precisely this lack of knowledge that people have. That's why we are being destroyed, dismantled. The enemy is duping us. We think that socialism can be Christian now or that critical race theory is a good thing or critical race theory doesn't really exist and you're just being crazy. These modern day thinkers know nothing about the history they claim to know about, but more importantly, they know nothing about the word of God because that is not wisdom from above. My desire as your pastor is that you become knowledgeable in all the ways of scripture in all the ways scripture would teach us, in Hosea 4.6, it says that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. We then would be fools to think that we have just arrived. We are in this place that's set just because we memorized two Bible verses. Everybody memorizes two Bible verses, right? John 3.16 and Genesis 1.1. We have not arrived just because we memorized two verses. We ought to rather study God's word incessantly, day and night seek knowledge. Live obedient to the truth that God has given us. A simple fact like understanding that there is original sins versus human beings being innately good can be the difference between a civil society that knows how to separate powers and authoritarian rule. Now going back to natural revelation, as good as it is, natural or general revelation and they can be interchanged and mean the same thing. Natural revelation doesn't lead anyone closer to understanding their final destination. Marcelo Gleiser would write in his book, he's a professor in Dartmouth, he would write in his book, as the island of knowledge grows, so do the shores of our ignorance. As the island of knowledge grows, 
so do the shores of our ignorance. Einstein was almost driven nuts over quantum mechanics, even calling it, quote, spooky action at a distance, unquote. In the very least, we know that this, even as much as we know now, there is so much about the natural, as much as we know now through science, through the hard sciences, about all of the things that exist in the universe, as much as we know now, there is so much about the natural world that remain beyond our comprehension, like quantum entanglement, which is what uh, Einstein is calling spooky, when, when you superimpose a position and you have this superposition of an electron and then once the quantum field collapses, then you can predict what happens through space of another electron. That freaked him out. And he was trying to disprove it his days and he couldn't disprove it. So we still don't know everything that's going on. But what's most important is that the Bible does reveal to us even with the general revelation that we have now, the Bible reveals to us what about God can be plain to us, that God has shown it to us. And this is about uh, natural revelation that the Bible gives us. For his invisible attributes, this is Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So knowing this, it should lead one to the Bible. It should lead one to study the Word of God. There is still rejection, however, from certain circles, famous psychologists and thinkers who teach, we get it, you know, living as if we are atheists is just going to bring everything to ruin. So this is what they say, these famous psychologists and thinkers. You can find them on YouTube, probably with millions and millions of hits. And this is what they would say, and this is what uh, Jungian psychologists would also say, is to live as if there is a God, that we ought to live as if there is a God. That's going to help society. And I love this one response I heard to this Jungian thought. It's where someone said, to live as if there is a God is to want the conclusions of a syllogism whose premises you do not accept. You can't just live as if there is a God, but not obey him, not believe in him, not put your faith in him. And we know that for all those that can hear, God is calling people to repentance, to leave their sinful ways and to turn back to God. This can only be done by grace alone, in faith alone, through Christ alone. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And we ended last week on a note when we asked the question, I believe, now what? If my purpose, my telos, is found in God, I have given my life to Christ, what should I do now? And we went through some instruction, but ended on the note, let all that you do be done in love. This would have pointed back to the reader 
or the reader back to chapter 13. This is Paul's high point in the letter. This would have ultimately solved all the problems of chapters 1 through 15. All their issues in the Corinthian church, their lack of holiness, their lack of unity, their lack of maturity was because they did not let love dominate their life. It was absent from their relationships. It was absent from the church. They had discord and disunity was rampant. They used the intellectualism of the day to push others down and prop themselves up. They used or they let illicit lusts take over their habits and behaviors. They became addicted to these things that were not good, that was evil. And that's why chapter 13 is the chapter on love that the church is to have for one another. What was the issue in the church? The issue was love. So it should be no surprise then as we end this letter, as we come to the conclusion of this letter, Paul reminds the Corinthians once again that love should be the main theme. It should be what propels our service, our worship, and obedience. And so it should go without saying that without love, there is no fellowship. Without love, there are no relationships. Without love, there is no church. Verse 14 ties in last week's passage on the instructions for a Christian to what we read this morning. And in this passage, Paul gives us an example to show us how love functions in the fellowship of the saints. And I have a few marks of love in the fellowship of the saints that I want to share with you. Verse 15, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. The first mark of love is evangelism. Evangelism. Evidence of love is shown through evangelism. That's the first thing that's mentioned and it should be something that we ought to remember. Now, when we see the word household, the word household oikos, it meant that it meant for every single person in that household. That means husband, wife, children, servant, slave, baby, everyone. They were the first converts. And so who is Stephanus? Well, we know who Stephanus is because we did it in the very first chapter of 1 Corinthians. In chapter 1, verse 16, Paul had already mentioned him because it was Paul who baptized this household himself. It was love that propelled Paul to evangelize and love that bore the first fruits or the first converts of Achaia. That means all of the people in the Corinthian church came after Stephanus and Stephanus' household. And I think that's what love does. Love propels the believer to reach out to others and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, thereby bringing them into the fold. This is what the church 2,000 years ago did. And we see that through love, Paul's evangelism, through love, Stephanus' household would be converted. Primary way of expressing love is evangelism. 
Now I do think that the world has gotten to a place where evangelizing or sharing your faith is considered or can be seen not as an act of love. Maybe people would take it precisely the opposite way. But I want to say that's not true. That's not true. No matter what the world says, it's the word that gives us truth. And the truth about love is that it leads the person to evangelize. If you have a friend or a family member that does not know Christ, the labor of love that we do is evangelism. If you have spoken to me personally in any capacity, you know that my wife and I continually pray for our friends and family that do not know Jesus Christ. They break our hearts when we pray for them every night. They don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Not only that, though, but as a member of the church, we commit to one another that we will also join you in your prayers for your unsaved family members and friends. Why? Because love. And if you are someone that has brought someone else to this church by a friend or a family member, maybe you were invited here to this church, chances are as soon as you walked in those doors, most of our members would know about you because we have been praying for you. In fact, every Saturday we get together and specifically pray for our family members and friends who are not yet saved. I want to mention something about the intensity of Paul's love, though. I would like to give you an example of the love Paul is talking about when it's concerning evangelism. Paul, who was the chief persecutor of Christians, he's the one in Acts 7 that saw to it that Stephen was stoned. He would hunt down other Christians. Probably very similar, not too different from what's happening in Afghanistan when they drag people out of their homes to kill them. This is what he was doing. He was so zealous for the cause of killing Christians that he would travel from place to place so he could root out all the Christians. But one day, just in one day, Paul was on his way to Damascus. And the Paul going into Damascus versus the Paul going out of Damascus were two vastly different people. The change was so drastic, no one could believe it. Paul, blinded by the vision of Christ on the road to Damascus, he happened to be staying at someone's house, and the Lord calls this man called Ananias to go lay hands on him that he may receive sight. This is how notoriously infamous Paul was. Ananias would say, Lord, can I tell you about this man? He's the murderer of Christians. He's done a great many evils. But the Lord would reassure Ananias, and he goes to pray for Paul. Paul is a completely changed man after that. Whatever zealousness drove him before to murder Christians, he was now propelled by love to proclaim Christ. In Romans 9, he goes as far as to say this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So he's saying in four levels, I am telling you the truth about what I am about to say. Four levels. That's, that, he's assuring, 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 and assuring this is the truth. And this is what he says in verse 2 in chapter 9, that I have great sorrow 
and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for Christ, from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He would rather have been cut off if it meant that other people could be saved. That was the love that motivated his evangelism. It's, the, it's what motivated Moses to cry out to God that he would rather be blotted out of the book of life if it could grant forgiveness to the people of God. When love is the motivator of all that you do, as we've seen in verse 14, when love is the motivator of all that you do, there is evangelism. Now for the second mark. And that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. The second mark is devotion. Love begets evangelism, and now we see that love begets devotion. The word for devotion is tasso. It's another word for assignment. So in other words, this is what you would have read in the Greek. They assign themselves to the service of the saints. Isn't that incredibly beautiful? No one had to force them or command them. They assigned themselves to service. No one needed to appoint them or install them to serve. They just served. There is a freedom to this kind of service. You could almost see the joy in which the household of Stephanus was serving. This would be reminiscent, or this should be reminiscent, of the free will offerings that the people of God gave when the tabernacle was being built in the book of Exodus. The household of Stephanus didn't just give their money, though. They gave themselves to the service of the saints. That's the kind of service love begets. It's a giving of the self. Some people, quote-unquote, serve and they take positions of maybe a deacon or elder to straighten out their shoulders a bit more, to stand a little taller than the rest. But we see here what Stephanus' household did was the opposite. They bent down a little more and they served. To devote yourself is about giving money, chapter 16. It's about using your spiritual gifts, chapter 12. And the word for service that we see here is diakonia. Diakonia is where we get the word deacon. And it meant to serve tables, to be a waiter. Literally, it's to wait tables, diakonia. They gave their money, their time, their energy. They gave whatever it took to serve the saints. That's diakonia. That's being a deacon. Being a deacon is not a place of prominence. It's a place of lowly service. And it's exactly this kind of service that the Stephanus household did. Why? Because they were imitating Paul as he imitated Christ. Chapter 11, verse 1. Christ would say in Matthew 20, The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word serve here is also diakonia. It's the kind of service that love propels us to do for one another. 
the early church father Chrysostom, he would comment on this passage. He would say, it's not that they ministered, but it's the word they have set themselves. This is the kind of life they have chosen together. This is their business in which they are always busy. Love in the fellowship of the saints brings people to not just any kind of service, but radical service, service that goes above and beyond any kind of job description or list of duties. It's devotion. The third mark is if you have love that will dictate all that you do in the church, the third mark is submission. In verse 16 it says, Be subjected such as these and to every, follow, every fellow worker and laborer. We live in an anti-submission culture today. But that is the opposite of what love would propel us to do. Love propels us to submit. And Paul is telling Corinthians to submit to the household of Stephanus. Why? In the church of Jesus Christ, we are to submit to people like these people, the household of Stephanus. Some people want to submit to no one but themselves. These are the people that are able to love no one also. And I will go as far as to say not even themselves. You keep on having treat yourself day. You are not loving yourself. You are actually hating yourself. Some people only want to submit to power or powerful people, perhaps because they have a lust for power themselves or perhaps because of fear or a myriad of other reasons. But no one can submit to someone that's lower than them unless it's out of love. This is where you would see a mother's love as an example. Where a mother would go down to the level of their children to feed them, to teach them, to have them grow. But I want to propose that what Paul is saying is much deeper than even that. Yes, even much deeper than that. He is saying that we ought to submit to people who are lowly for the sake of Christ and the church. These are the people that you are to emulate. It's not the ones that are power hungry that will use their power to stomp on others to get on top. It's not the ones who think power is the zero-sum game and they want to take it all because if you trust them, they will distribute it as they see fit. The ones we should emulate are like the ones in the household of Stephanus who gave their all to serve the saints. The church is not like the world where we have to outdo the other to wrestle power away from them to give to ourselves. You are to look at a man like Stephanus, to look at that household, and you'll see that in the church, if there is a mad dash for anything, it's a mad dash to outserve the other. Jesus would teach his disciples that the greatest among you will be your servant. Because in God's kingdom, he teaches whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You know why? It's because God does the exalting. God does the exalting. Here, we here on earth, we're trying to get our names out there. We want to make sure our voices are heard. 
We want to have a say. Include me in the decision-making process. Give me some power. Give me some of your money. All the while tearing other people down. But Jesus tells us to humble ourselves, to serve the other, to lift him up. And it is God who then exalts. God has shown us whom he will exalt. It is the one who humbles himself. He is the one who will serve rather than be served. So who do we look up to? Who do we admire? Is it the ones that have the biggest following? Ones who have the pithiest sayings, the funniest jokes, the most charismatic leadership skills? Paul shows us that the ones we should admire, the ones we should be subject to, are the people who model their lives after Christ. Submit to people like that. Paul even says in verse 18 to give recognition to people like that. We go to the last mark. In verse 17 and verse 18, Paul writes, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus, at Fortunatus, and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours, recognition to such people. The fourth mark is friendship. First, I would like to note that friendship is not virtual. There is a physical element to it that you cannot deny. Paul didn't rejoice at imagining Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. They were going to him. The thought of finally seeing them in person made him rejoice. Sometimes I feel like day by day we are going further into the twilight zone. Uh, we all have this technology now. There's never a time when we're not away from our phones. There's never a time you can disconnect from your phone, put it down for a few hours. You're always on it. We have all this technology. Not to enhance reality, though, but to replace reality. People used to know that your Facebook friends aren't your real-life friends. Now it's muddled a little. Some people who have thousands of virtual friends are in reality recluses. And even the ones that they hang out with the outside world are only people that maybe would enhance their virtual life. Like you go and hang out with people in real life so that you could go drinking, partying, food exploring, Instagram selfieing, fantasy footballing. These are all shallow and unsubstantial relationships. Biblical friendship isn't just about hanging out with buddies. The friendship that the Bible is talking about is family. We do life together. We read and study the Bible together. We share our prayers with one another. We worship together. And what happens as a result? Our spirits are refreshed. There's a tendency to be one-sided or incomplete in our friendships. Maybe you think you're not shallow in your friendships then. You've heard this, you've heard what I just said. It's like, I'm not shallow. With some people, but all you do is share and complain about your problems with one another. I mean, there could be deep-seated issues. 
I would still say that's one-sided if that's all you're doing is just complaining to one another and saying, look, look how deep our friendship is. That's one-sided. I want this church to be full of friendships, true biblical ones. It's these friendships that will refresh the spirit. And the only way to have this kind of refreshing friendship is to have love. We must have love for one another in the fellowship of the saints. And our model, our ultimate example is Jesus Christ. Knowing all this, what Jesus Christ said in John 15 then, knowing everything that I've just said, what Jesus Christ said in John 15 should make even more sense now. I'm going to read that for you, this short section in John 15, verse 12. And Jesus is telling his disciples this, knowing everything that I've said about friendship. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you love one another. Friends, remembering what Christ has done for us, that's how we love one another. Remember what Christ has done for you and love one another in that same way. If you know, I am a pretty big fan of LOTR. And the title may be a little bit reminiscent of the first installment of The Lord of the Rings. I'm not going to nerd out, I promise. But the Fellowship of the Ring was only kept together when they had all, the whole fellowship, had kept the goal in sight. There was one goal in the fellowship of the ring. When they kept the goal in sight, the fellowship was held together. When they lost sight of their goal is when the fellowship is broken. And then movie two comes out. Anyway, but when you lose sight of the goal is when the fellowship is broken. Don't lose sight of the goal. Jesus Christ has died for us, and he rose again. And those that believe in him will not die, but will have eternal life with him if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Remembering what Christ has done for us, we can now love one another. My friends, remembering what Christ has done for us, let us love one another. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the word that you give us, how you exhort us, how, Lord God, you propel us by your love, by your Holy Spirit. And, Lord, now may we do as you command us to, as you obey. May we love one another as you have called us to. Help us to have the marks that we see in the Bible so that we can truly have deep and honest and real 
friendships in this fellowship of the saints. Let's take this time to pray. And as the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts, there are times where we have failed in these aspects of love, where we have not loved, where we didn't use these marks, where we were selfish. Maybe you used the power place to step on other people, even in this church. Maybe you didn't forgive. Maybe you didn't understand Christ's love as deep as you should. Let's take this time to repent, turn back to God, and ask God to empower us by his Holy Spirit to live out in the manner that he calls us to, as we are called to be a fellowship of the saints of God. Let's pray.